You know, as a preacher or as anyone who teaches God's Word to his people, you should never lose sight, although you often or sometimes do, lose sight of how humbling and amazing it is to bring God's truth to his people. What a blessing. And I'm grateful to the Lord for this opportunity once again to stand before you and to teach from the Holy Scriptures. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 24. <clears throat> Romans 2, 17 to 24. Speaking of teaching, I said something last week that in reflection, I want to comment on briefly. Uh, I, I mentioned how the interpretation of verses 14 to 15 that I gave last week was different from, uh, I mentioned several illuminaries, several names, John Calvin, Charles Hodge, John Murray, and John MacArthur. And uh, I will say that these are four of probably the best interpreters of Scripture that the church has had. Um, so I will say this, I don't depart from the interpretation of those men lightly, but I think it's a, a bit of an illustration for all of us that when we teach the Scriptures, we really are doing two things. One, we never teach out of a vacuum. We never come to the Word of God not being on the shoulders of those who have interpreted God's Word for 2,000 years and beyond into the Old Testament. And so we should never be cavalier or prideful in departing from those who have gone before us. In fact, we should do that slowly and uh, with much trepidation. While at the same time, it is true that the Word of God must always be at the front and at the end of our interpretation of Scripture. And so we must always be faithful in our consciences to what we believe the Word of God teaches. So I think it's just helpful for us to remember that we stand on the shoulders of giants as we come to the Bible. And I say this to all of us because we're all students of the Bible as Christians. We're going to be reading books and we're going to be reading our study Bibles and listening to podcasts. And, and we always have these two things going on at the same time. This healthy reception of the traditions of those who are godly. While at the same time being bound by the Word of God. To use Luther's language uh, when he stood before that council. So just a bit of a reflection for us on how it is, the posture of our hearts when we come to the Scriptures. And oftentimes in teaching and preaching, you come to many passages where people are just divided on, on questions of interpretation. So I hope that that is helpful for you. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking a lot about cultural, nominal, or moralistic Christians. This is a category that has been right in front of us over the last several weeks. People who are, yes, in and around the church who claim to be Christians, but they are not. Some quite moral, some a bit flippant about church, some quite regular quite involved, even. 
people who may be here this morning. Perhaps. And we're not talking about this because we're doing a series on nominal Christianity or moralism or moralistic cultural American Christianity. We're not doing a series on that topic, but simply because we are going through Romans chapter 2, which is directed at religious unbelievers. That's what Paul is addressing if you want to, to come up from the details. And by the way, we're going to get into the details, but if you want to come up from the details and look at the big idea as we think about this as a church today, 2,000 years beyond this kind of uh, discussion within Judaism in the first century, that's really what's in view. Paul addressing religious unbelievers. And I'll just say once again, a bit of a plug for expository preaching. When we go through texts of Scripture, we have the benefit of being able to have all of these little series within a series. I remember when we did the Sermon on the Mount. And we spent so much time talking about prayer. Not because we did a series on prayer, but because as we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, we come to the Lord's Prayer and the material surrounding the Lord's Prayer. And therefore, we get to look at prayer at its base in context, in the context of Jesus' teaching about the kingdom and about vainglory and about authenticity and so forth. So just a bit of a reminder there for us of what we are about as a church, building on exposition. And now we find ourselves in Romans 2. In this chapter, Paul is basically addressing Jews apart from Christ. So who's he been talking about? Who is he talking about now? Jews apart from Christ in his day. Apart from Christ, all people are under sin and wrath. Now the Gentiles apart from Christ are described in chapter 1 verses 18 to 32. And the Jews apart from Christ are the topic of chapter 2. So not just Gentiles and Jews, but we must understand what Paul is doing and where he's headed. The gospel's always in view for him. He's not just doing, once again, a little series on sin and wrath. Paul is moving from, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That's guiding everything that he's saying about sin and wrath in these chapters. So it very much is Gentiles, apart from Christ, Jews apart from Christ. However, up through verse 16, Paul doesn't actually use the word Jew. Have you noticed that? As we've been going through these 16 verses, we've had a, a ton to say about Judaism, about the Jewish mindset in the first century. But Never has the word Jew been used in these 16 verses. He's clearly talking about the Jews, but he does not address them directly. Instead, he says in verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O 
man, every one of you who judges. So up to this point, Paul is very intentionally, very rhetorically keeping it general. And in those first 16 verses, Paul is building his case. It really is brilliant if you follow his logic, if you see what it is he is doing rhetorically. He's building his case, anticipating all the while what he is about to say in verses 17 to 29. Paul is about to bring it home. He's about to make his point explicitly and directly. So what we're going to see today, Paul has essentially already said. He's already said what we're going to see this week and what we're going to see next week. But now, Paul is going to take all those little pieces and he's going to punch the point in to the Jewish hearer apart from Christ. So let me just take a moment and review where we've been in chapter 2. In verses 1 to 5, he told the Jews, listen, you look down on the Gentiles for what they do, and yet you do the very same things. And he asked them, how will you escape God's judgment? Doing these things for which God's judgment comes, how will you escape it when you do the very same things they do? The problem is, Paul says, that you presume on God's kindness to you as a people. Because you're Jewish, God is going to cut you a break, so you think. And then in verses 6 through 11, Paul told the Jews that God will be impartial in his final judgment. Judgment, whether a person is a Jew or a Gentile, will be according to works. Remember, if that passage troubled you about final judgment, remember, I kind of come up for air and remember what Paul is doing. The whole point is to say, look, Jew, God will judge you by the same standard he judges the Gentiles. It's an even playing field. There's no partiality with God. That's what he's doing there. What do the deeds say? That's going to be the criterion on the final day of judgment. It's not about profession, but rather practice from a pure, changed Heart. That's what matters. Practice proceeding from a pure heart. Of course, Paul is there preparing the way for the gospel. So you might be wondering, as Paul and interpreters have wrestled with this, as Paul is going through this long passage and explaining how all are under sin and all are under wrath, how he, in these, these little points, verses 7 and 10 and then 14 and 15 from last week, in these little points he's talking about people who have circumcised hearts, well later he'll say that, or people who have the law written on their heart. We're talking about people who seek for glory and honor and immortality and receive eternal life. What's going on here? Is he talking about Gentiles who can be saved apart from Christ? No. Paul is preparing the Jew to hear that there are Gentiles who do the law from the heart as Christians. 
the amazing thing about the gospel. In other words, as Paul's marching through about sin and wrath, he can't help but to just have these little moments of delight in what God has done in Christ for even, yes, the Gentile, which should be absolutely amazing and would be amazing to the Jewish ear. Then, in verses 12 to 16, Paul introduces the concept of the law. This is the first time this comes up in Romans, the law. Uh, people will say the, the, the question of what, how law and gospel go together, that Romans is probably one of the most important books for coming at that question. Well, this is where it begins to appear in this book, the law. The Jews have their law. The law of Moses, the law given by God to Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. But Paul says, hold on a second. What matters is not that you possess the law or that you hear the law read every Sabbath day in the synagogue and perhaps daily morning afternoon and evening from your parents and from the Levites and as you go to the temple for the various festivals. What matters is not that you are inundated with the law, but that you do it. And the Jews apart from Christ do not do the law. That's Paul's point. So those who have the law will be judged by the law, and those who do not have the law will be judged without the law. Caiaphas will be judged with the law. Cicero will be judged apart from the law. All judged, whether with or without it, for his or her sin. So to sum up, verses 1 to 16... Paul's indictment of the Jew of his day, apart from Christ, could be summarized with these words. Hypocrisy, presumption, pride, and disobedience. This is scathing. It really is. And it is meant to bring the Jew to a place of falling on his face before the God of Abraham and saying, just as the tax collector does at the temple in Luke 18, woe is me, a sinner. God have mercy on me. And to cry out to Christ for salvation. To call, as he'll say in Romans 10, on the name of the Lord. To call out to Christ for redemption. And all that we see in these 16 verses is really just meant to set up the verses we come to today. So I've said a lot so far, but all of that is just background, helping you see the various pieces Paul has put in place, all preparing us for what we come to today. Where Paul will dissect the religious psyche and hypocrisy of the Jew. Paul will put the Jewish heart and the Jewish mind under the magnifying glass. Paul will get to the truth of what's going on in the hearts and minds of his fellow Jews apart from Christ. The religious, the Israelites, Paul is describing, this is amazing, Paul is describing his own heart and life before Christ 
saved him. As Paul is marching on the road to Damascus, seeking to arrest and harm Christians, he marches with the mindset that we're about to see. This is how Paul viewed himself and the world and his relationship to God. Until Christ radically changed his life. The title for the sermon this morning is Safety Shattered. The safety or security that the Jews had built for themselves as the Jews who have the law shattered. Shattered. And I want to say this to us this morning, because you might be tempted this morning, even next week as we get into circumcision, woo, just sounds so distant, sounds so removed from my life in the 21st century. You might be tempted just to kind of check out and see this as some sort of uh, biblical study, academic kind of discussion, but that's not the case at all. What we are seeing here is the shattering of all false security for religious, moral people. All false security that you take in your moral code, in your belonging to the church, in your having certain things in your head or being raised a certain way, what you know, what you've inherited, what you hear, all of that. If that is where you build your safety and security, this text shatters it for you. So not just a distant discussion, but a real-life wrecking ball for false assurance. And I pray that if there is any among us, I don't know, but if there is any among us who is, who is living with that kind of false assurance, that they have God, they know God because of these things, like the Jew thought that God would graciously and mercifully just wreck that for you. Wreck that for you this morning. I pray that he will do that. Let's go to him in prayer here in a moment after we read. If you'll go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 2. We're going to look at verse, we're going to start with verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. 
For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord now. This is God's word, perfect and profitable, holy. It is for our edification. Please hear it. uh, Sit underneath it as we go through it this morning. Let God do his work in all of us. Let's pray and ask for his help. Father, we submit ourselves to you this morning. We come before you humbly asking that you would make known the riches of the gospel and gospel life before us today. We pray that you would expose the errors and sins of our hearts. Father, that you would point us to life in Christ. Father, we ask for the health of our church. We pray that you would continue to grow us spiritually, that we would continue to grow in the knowledge of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. That all that we need for life and godliness would show up in our lives as we meditate on your word and as we massage it into the lives of each other as a church. Father, we ask this morning that as we dig down into the details here, Lord, that you would just hold our attention on false security. And I pray, Father, that false security, that false safety, uh, that this assurance that we oftentimes create for ourselves, that you would tear that down this morning by means of your word. Lord, would you work in each of our hearts? Would you apply it to each of us as your spirit sees fit? We thank you for it. Would we be doers and not hearers only? Go with us now. Holy Spirit of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Paul here shatters the religious safety and security of the Jews, particularly as it relates to the law, he focuses on two things. And these are going to be our two points for this morning, if you're writing them down and you'd like to. Here are the two points for today. The sense of superiority and the height of hypocrisy. As Paul shatters this false safety that the Jews had built for themselves, these are the two topics that he looks into. He sets up the first to smash it with the second. Or he, I should say, highlights the first, calls into question the first, and smashes it with the second. So let's look first at the sense of Superiority. Read with me again verses 17 to 20, please. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Man, you can just hear some patting on the back as you read through these verses. Oh, how puffed up. Throughout this larger section, verses 17 to 24 that is, Paul uses the word law five 
times. It is clear that possession of the law stands at the center of the Jewish mindset or the Jewish view of self. How the Jews view themselves at the center of that identity, at the center of that self-consciousness is the law. It stands at the center of a mindset of superiority. And indeed, the law is at the beginning, middle, and end of these verses. Verses 17 to 20. Notice that. Verse 17 at the beginning. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, in the middle, verse 18, because you are instructed from the law, and then at the end, verse 20, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So Paul is saying that the Jews have a sense of superiority next to the Gentiles because unlike those wicked Gentiles, they have the law. The Gentiles are a lawless bunch. Look at those wicked pagans in in their temples, worshiping their idols, committing their debauchery. But we, we, the Jews, we have the law. We are a special people. And as the law people, they lean or rely on it. Boast or glory in the God who gave it. And they know God's will because it's in the law. They read it all the time. And they approve of the best things because the law tells us what is best. Well, in theory, yes. In theory, yes. The Jews were told to meditate on the law day and night. Psalm 1. And to glory in the Lord alone. Jeremiah 9, 24. And they were told that the law is a lamp unto their feet and a light unto their path. Psalm 119, 105. The law, the word of God, shows God's will, what is excellent, what is good, beautiful, and true in the world. The Jews did. Yes, they had it. And they were to rely on it and boast in the God who gave it. All of that is true. But what kind of boasting in God was this? Charles Hodge, I think here, has a a nice quote that captures the difference between what was happening among the Jews in Paul's day and what was called for by texts like Jeremiah 9. Here's what he says. The glorying in God may be right or wrong according to the reasons of it. If it proceeds from a sense of our own emptiness and from the right apprehensions of the excellence of God and from faith in His promises, then then it is that glorying which is so often commanded. It's a good thing. But... If this glorying arises from false notions of our relation to him as his peculiar favorites, then it is vain and wicked. And that's what was going on. 
This glorying in God or boasting in God and relying on the law that supposedly characterized the Jews was not authentic. It was not real, substantive, deep in the heart. It was not carried along by faith. It was not solideo gloria. For God's glory alone. Listen to how Jesus describes it. Listen to these three texts from the mouth of our Lord. John 5, 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So do they glory in God? Jesus says, if you do not glory in the Son, then you do not glory in the God who sent the Son, the Father. John 8, 42, if God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. So is God your father? Do you love God? How are you treating me? His son, Jesus says. John 5, 39. You search the scriptures. There they are with their law. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about Me, Jesus says, this is not real boasting in the Lord. This is vain and wicked. Paul goes on. Not only are they the law people, the people who rely and boast and approve rightly, but in their mind, because they are the law people, now listen to this, this is how they relate to the people in the ancient world. Because they are the law people, they are also the very light of the world. Verses 19 to 20. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Man, what a pedestal they had put themselves on. They are the truth people. They're the Word people. They're the Bible people. Well, they're God's people. Teachers of the foolish and infantile nations, they are the guides to the blind and light to those who are in darkness. And yes, once again, yes, yes. This was God's calling for the Jewish people. All throughout the Old Testament, we see that they were described in the Old Testament as being a light and a blessing to the nations. This is who the Jewish people were supposed to be. That through Abraham's descendants, the world would be blessed. That that he would be a blessing. We see Abraham being a blessing to Philistines and Hittites and Egyptians. Sometimes not a blessing to them. We remember that. But we see this emphasis in the Old Testament that the Jewish people were to be a people of light and blessing to the pagan nations. Those nations described in Genesis chapter 10 that dispersed coming from Ham, Shem, and Japheth and went all across the world. These particular Shemites, these particular ones were to be a blessing to the rest of the nations. But who was to be the light 
that blessing answer the Christ. The Christ himself is the blessing. The Christ himself is the light. So Isaiah 42, 6 and 49, 6, Jesus or the Christ, the future Messiah, is called a light for the nations. Genesis twenty two eighteen, God tells Abraham, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So who's to be the light? Who's to be the blessing? Christ. And through Christ, the true Jews united with him. Those who look to him by faith are called sons of light, John 12, 36, and the light of the world, Matthew 5, 14. So who is the light? Christ and all those before him and after him who trust in him are themselves in him and through him sons of light and light of the world. Instead of being guides to the blind, the Jews apart from Christ had become blind guides. Listen to how Jesus describes them in Matthew 15, 14. The Jewish religious leaders of his day are described this way. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. So here they are, the Jews of Paul's day. They're all the way up to the top with their religious leaders going out into the world to gain converts, and they are blind guides leading others into blind pits of darkness. But they're patting themselves on the back. So what about us? Let's, let's bring this home to us. Think, well, I'm a Christian. None of that applies to me. I mean, come on. Well, are we not the word people? Are we not the truth people? The gospel people? We are God's people, right? The kinds of things that the professing Jew says here we say too, right? Of course, And just as I said with the Jew, well, yes, in theory, the same is true for us. Christians, yes, well, yes, we are the light of the world. What? Yes, we do have in the gospel, which is the fulfillment of the law, in the gospel, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Yes. But here's the question we all have to ask. Do we hold this truth with worship or presumption? Are we worshipers or those who presume on God's kindness because of the label that we bear? As Kent Hughes says here, Paul warns religious people like us. You're here this morning, right? So what are you doing? You're you're being religious right now. You're at a religious service right now. So Paul warns religious people like us to guard ourselves from the dangers of a false religious confidence. Listen to this. What Paul is saying to the Jew here is what Jesus will say to some in that day who say to him, Lord, 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 I... 
I did these things for you. I served you. I even did some miraculous things in your name. I, Lord, Lord, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Your deeds do not match your profession. You say, Lord, Lord, but your life doesn't match it. Your life's not submitted to the Lord of glory. It's the same thing. What Paul is saying to the Jews here, Jesus will say to professing Christians who are not real on that day. Whose works do not evidence saving faith. Yes, we have the truth. But do we do the truth? And that leads us to our second point this morning. The height of hypocrisy. So we've seen the Jewish sense of superiority with the law at the center. Now we come to the height of hypocrisy. What are the Jews actually doing? This is how they view themselves. But what are they doing? Verses 21 to 24. This is a rhetorical masterpiece. As Paul levels this attack against the Jews under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Keep in mind, keep in mind. Before, you know, you, you say, oh, man, this is so anti-Semitic. This is so anti, I mean, what, what is going on here? This is, I want you to see what Paul says at the beginning of Romans 9. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul would rather himself go to hell that his nation would be saved. He loves his people. He's not anti-Jewish. Paul loves his people. He wants them to turn to their Christ. He wants them to turn to the salvation that God has given them. For he will save his people from their sins. Name him Yeshua. Jesus, the Savior, trust in Him. That's Paul's endeavor. This is not anti-Jewish literature. This is a Jew trying to get his fellow Jews to get on the ark. So look at these verses. Verses 21 to 24. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. We've seen already that having the truth amounts to nothing if we don't do it. I've said before that Paul here has already said most of what we're going to see today and next week. Uh, the basic gist has already been given. And that's essentially what we have here. Having the truth means nothing unless we do it. We can say that we are gospel people. Let me speak to you, professing Christian. We can say that we are gospel 
people that we trust in the gospel. We can even use language that's become very popular in the last 10 years. We're gospel-centered, Christ-centered, grace-oriented. We can say we trust in this gospel. But unless we are godly and zealous for good works, we deny our profession. We are liars. Isn't this what we get in Titus chapter 2? Which is made very clear, verse 11, for the grace of God. Listen to the language of Paul in Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now what does this grace do? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Where ungodliness and worldly passions are embraced, Christ is denied. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And what is the result of this grace? We're grace people, right? We are grace people. We are saved by grace through faith. Grace alone Yes, yes, praise God. But what is this grace all about? What is it meant to do? Verse 14, that Christ would purify for himself. Listen to this. This is, this is what grace is moving towards. This is what grace does. That Christ would purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Don't stand before God and hear those words. Depart from me, you who work iniquity. I never knew you. If godliness and zeal for good works is not a part of your life, then work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We should all do that anyway. Go to the Lord and seek his face. Cry out for his grace and seek him in good John Bunyan Puritan fashion. In Pilgrim's Progress, grace abounding to the chief of sinners, fashion. Seek him on your face. Deal with your heart. Don't just keep coming to church. It's not going to work. It's not going to do it. It won't do it. It won't stand on the last day. And that's what Paul is saying here about the true Jew. A real Law person, for us we can understand that a real gospel person, is a person who actively renounces sin and zealously pursues good works. And that is what Paul is saying here about the true Jew. Remember how he started? You call yourself a Jew. What is a Jew? God can raise up children for Abraham from the rocks. So certainly a Jew is not just to be understood ethnically. You call yourself a Jew. But Paul is concerned here with what it means to be a true Jew. And we'll talk more about what a true Jew is next week when we look at that and how, in a sense, Christians are true Jews, understood in a sense. And we'll see that in Romans 9. We are the offspring of Abraham. But a Jew, a law person, a truth person, a light person, practices what he proclaims. 
by the grace of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, centered on the Christ of God. That's what a law person rightly understood, and a gospel person, they're the same thing, actually does. Paul says here that practice does not match profession. They speak against sins. Look at, look at what the text says. They speak against sins like stealing, adultery, and idolatry. While at the same time, they do those things. Now, I think this is meant to be twofold. They actually do do those things. They actually do steal things that are not their own. They actually do commit adultery. And they do get wrapped up with idols as they take idols and sell idols and profit from idols that the Gentiles have in their temples. We see in Deuteronomy 7.25, the carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves lest you be ensnared by it for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. But what were the Jews doing in Paul's day? I think Paul is highlighting here a practice of basically profiting from the sell of silver and gold, which happens to be silver and gold idols. So they're not worshiping those gods, but they're quite happy to sell one to another guy who's going to go and worship it. But we hate idolatry. We abhor it. We actually abhor it. Not so. And what about adultery? The divorce laws were essentially a, a, a license for adultery. You just got tired of your wife, uh, the, what, what the rabbis were teaching. You just get tired of your wife. She, it's not that she committed adultery against you, but you just get tired of her. Maybe she's getting a little older. Or maybe she's not doing what she needs to do, what you think she needs to do at home. And so just divorce her and get a new one. Well, that's adultery, Jesus says. It's no different. So I think it does have to do with actual acts of stealing, committing adultery, and the, this idolatry of, associated with temples, robbing temples. But we must also trace it back just simply to the heart. Matthew 5, 28. What does Jesus say? I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what Paul is saying is, look, you commit adultery too. You think it's so awful to commit adultery, Jew? You think it's so terrible and you point out all of these different Gentiles who have mistresses and concubines and so forth? But when you look lustfully at a woman, you're a married man, you commit adultery with her in your heart before the holy God. And here's the great irony as we finish up this morning. Here's the great irony of all of this. Now, this is interesting. Notice this. Because this, this is what Paul's doing. The end result of Jewish hypocrisy, of Jews condemning the very things they practice, is that, listen to this, the name of God is blasphemed and dishonored. Now watch this. This is what Paul is doing. It's amazing. Remember what he said about the Gentiles. What was the problem with the Gentiles? Go back to chapter 1, verse 21. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Hold on a second. So the Gentiles, at the end of the day, what do they do? They dishonor God. 
the Jews. What do they do at the end of the day? They dishonor God. It's a different flavor, but it's all the same. Although the Jews knew God, and even more so than the Gentiles because they had God's law, they actually had the embodiment of knowledge and truth. The Gentiles had frogs and trees and stars and their own conscience, but the Jews had the holy law of God inscribed. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Under the law, judged by the law, apart from the law, judged apart from the law, all are under sin. That's what Paul is doing. And the net result of all of this is that God's glory is trampled on. And let me say that about the problem in our world is not all these individual sins. It's about the glory of the living God. The triune God who is before, now, and after. The Alpha and the Omega. The eternal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally existing in love between persons. The glory of glory. The infinite, eternal King who out of love and kindness made us and made us in His image. His glory must stand. To trample on His glory is no small thing. People who talk about sin as only being on the outside. I once heard Christopher Hitchens say something about how awful God is because he even judges you for what's in your mind. Of course he does, because God must be enthroned in the heart. He must be enthroned on the mind. Wherever his glory is trampled, the just king will judge. Whether it's in the heart, the mind, the interactions of people and nations, Because the earth will one day be filled with the glory of the Lord and the knowledge of the Lord and the praise of the Lord through Christ the King. And Christian, as we close, consider this. We live entirely for the renown of God in the world. That's why you have breath this morning. That's why you live. That's why you have a job. That's why you have some money in your bank account. That's why you have a spouse or children, parents. That's why this building is put together right here. That's why everything exists for the glory of God. That's why God saved you. Not so you could ride the gravy train into heaven. Because if that's what you're doing... You're going to end up in hell. God saved you for His glory. Romans 1.5, for the sake of His name. Ephesians 1.12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Ephesians 2.7, our salvation is so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So how do we bring honor? Because that's really the issue, right? That's why the Gentiles will be in hell. That's why Jews will be in hell is because God was dishonored. So as Christians who are born again to an honoring of God eternally, 
How do we do that this morning? How do we do that this afternoon, this week, when we leave? It's simple, really. By having practice that matches our profession. That's how we honor God. That's the big idea of Romans 2. So you who are afraid of talking about works because grace will be compromised, read your Bible. Read your Bible. It's so clear. Profession without practice is sweeping all across the Christian world. And, and maybe sectors of this church. So this morning, let all false safety and security be shattered for you. Repent and believe anew. Anew. Go forth clothed in the righteousness of Christ, empowered by His Holy Spirit. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Holy Word. Lord, we are truly undone before You. All, often, Lord, often we are just distracted. We wonder. Lord, help us fight the good fight. Help us persevere in prayer. The kind of life described in Ephesians 6. Praying at all times in the Spirit. Above all, Paul says, praying at all times in the Spirit for all the saints. Lord, help us, your people. Forgive us for our hypocrisy for our negligence, for our laziness, for our worldliness, for our lack of kindness and love and intentionality, for impurity of heart, have mercy on us, O oh God. Would we not presume on your kindness, on your grace? Would we not walk around flippantly using the word grace? But would we be people of godliness who shine forth the immeasurable riches of your kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Would we be zealous for good works, trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for the appearing of our blessed hope. God, we praise you for the gospel. We ask for your mercy in our lives. We pray that you would grant us deeper assurance and deeper authenticity through Romans 2. In Jesus' name, amen.